Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 178 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. For this week's episode of the podcast, I finally got the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with one of my favorite black and white photographers and someone who I have always admired, Cole Thompson. Cole has a totally unique philosophical approach to photography, which is often misunderstood by many people. It is something he refers to as photographic celibacy, and I think it has tremendous merits. Cole and I discussed some interesting topics this week, including how he got his start in photography, why he has chosen black and white as his medium, external validation of our photography and its impact on our creative vision, how to develop a personal vision in your photography, the influence of praise, of course photographic celibacy, and lots more. Over on Patreon this week, Cole and I explore the question, do you need to go to great locations to get great photographs? Okay, let's get to the show. Awesome. Well, Cole Thompson, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. Absolutely. I am glad we could finally pull this off. Uh, No thanks to my error in remembering how to read a calendar on my wedding anniversary this week. So thanks for your gracious patience with my mental mistakes. (laughs) And that was uh, 14, I believe, right? It was 14 years. That's right. Happy 14th. Thanks. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, obviously, you might not know this, but uh, there have been lots and lots and lots of people that I I highly respect in the photo industry that have recommended you for the podcast, and I think there's probably lots of good reasons for that. Mostly because of your your, your dashing looks and <laughs> and your uh, and your amazing voice. Am I right? I have my hair right now. I haven't had a haircut for many many months because of the virus, so. A lot of people probably want to see my hair. Oh, with well, it, the podcast, they can't see that. Okay, sorry. Oh well, we'll have to tease them with an image later. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, for people, I'd be surprised by this, but for people that aren't familiar with you, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe just a quick story about how you got into photography. Well, I was raised in the Air Force, so we moved around a lot, which is both good and bad. But, you know, the good is that you learn to get out there, make friends and uh, just survive. And in one of those locations, we were living in Rochester, New York, home of Kodak, which, you know, maybe there's a lot of people nowadays who don't understand how big a name Kodak was and what it did for photography. It revolutionized it for the, the common man. Right. So I'm living in Rochester, New York. I'm out on a hike with a friend and we stumble across this old house, a ruin of a house. And he mentioned that it was a home that had once been owned by George Eastman. And that piqued my interest. And so I went to the school library, checked out his biography and began reading and fell in love with photography before I'd ever finished the book, before I ever had taken a picture, before I'd ever been in the darkroom to see that magic moment when a print comes up. And I was just convinced my future was photography. Wow. Then. And then about 17 years old, I'm out of high school and I'm getting ready to go to school and I'm thinking RIT, future in photography. And then just one day it hit me. If I do this for a living, I'm going to lose my passion for it because it'll become a job. And I abandoned those plans, went into business and photography's been my avocation ever since. Mm. Never worked as never worked as a photographer. <laughs> but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you do make money at your photography through publications and things of that nature? Uh, really, I never do anything to make money. I do sell some prints enough. I don't really put a lot of work into it, but I print sales do support my travels and my equipment. But uh, really, and I help John Barclay, which I've sworn never to mention his name. You've tricked me into it. <laughs> I, I do help John Barclay do a couple of, of uh photo tours a year just because John and I are friends and I enjoy being with him. But no, there's nothing I do that is focused on making money. And that's uh, just one of my things. I don't ever want this to become anything but pure, passionate, creative endeavor. 
I really like that attitude. And I, I think there's a lot of us that I think are a little envious of that. Cause I think, um, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with one of my really good friends who's a photographer and he was kind of on the fence about trying to push his photography more into the, you know, how do I turn this into a career? And he eventually just came to the conclusion he didn't want to do that. And he wanted to keep it as something that was a purely creative pursuit that he enjoyed. And, you know, if he made money, that's cool, but he didn't want to put any efforts or focus on the monetization side of photography, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think that does free you up in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I know that in a modern world, if you say, here's Joe Blow, he's a professional, and here's Cole Thompson, he's an amateur, that implies something. But, you know, the true meaning of amateur is someone who does it for the love of it. And it, they don't do it for a living. And they're generally self-taught. And that's me. I tell people I'm the most unqualified speaker they'll ever hear from because I've never taken a class in photography or a workshop. I've never worked as a photographer. I don't have gallery representation. I'm not a Canon explorer of light. I only own three lenses and none of them are primes. I'm completely unqualified. And then I say, but do I have any qualifications? One, my images. And that's all that matters. (laughs) That does seem to be an important facet of uh, people actually appreciating your work. Although uh, from what I gather in listening to you and hearing other people talk about you and reading your blog posts on your website, the external validation of your work is not something that you put any emphasis on whatsoever. And I was really hoping to talk to you about that because I think there's a lot of uh, people that take pictures for that external validation. And I'm curious kind of what is your approach to, to that side of, of photography? Well, I, for many years did the same. I thought that unless it won or it got a lot of likes, or it sold, that that was evidence of it being a good image. And I, I just don't see it that way any longer. A good image is one that I truly love, whether or not anyone else likes it, whether it sells or gets a lot of likes. Uh, but this concept that the more likes it something gets, the better the image is, is uh, it's not right. I've got an Auschwitz image and one day I had I used to post one image a week on some social media sites and it had very few likes. And then I just happened to notice this image next to it, a really cheesy nude, you know, had like 20 times the number of likes. And I thought to myself, does that mean that image is 20 times better? And of course, it doesn't. Uh, so by what yardstick do you measure if an image is good? Or And I just say it's how much you love it. That's the only thing that matters to me. I, I think of this quote by Georgia O'Keefe recently, where she said, I had already decided the matter for myself. So uh, compliments or criticism, they both go down the same drain. Uh, I've gotten to a point where I'm pretty impervious. I mean, criticism can sting at times, but you shake it off. But praise, that's really, that's actually more dangerous than criticism because it can sway our view of things. And I've had my own view of my images swayed by how many likes it gets or how much praise it gets. And I don't like that. I want to be uh, I want to decide if I love an image and then be able to stick with that feeling. That's awesome. I think that's something that a lot of people are probably like, how How do you do that? Because <laughs> when I think about some of the images that I love, I, I, I do wish that other people liked them as much as I did. Is that something you ever think or care about? Or is it you've just gotten to the point where it doesn't matter anymore? Like if I like it, that's all that matters? Well, it's a work in progress. It's, you know, <laughs> you're, you're constantly working. It. Sure. And there, there's another quote that Linda Ronstadt I just read about where she says, look, we all like the praise. We all like the recognition. But if that's the reason you're doing the work for, then you're in big trouble. And I guess at a certain age, you realize I've only got so many years left. Do I want to spend those remaining years trying to please other people or pleasing myself? And I, I think it's just partly age. Hmm. Was there, a, was there a specific moment in time or an event that occurred where you kind of came to that conclusion? And because and, it seems like it's it seems like it would be a very empowering thing to embrace once you can arrive at that point. So I'm curious if something happened to to get you to think that way. I think the spark happened when I had created the angel Gabriel. First, let me put this in context. For 35 years, I thought of myself as a photographer who was to document 
and that manipulate was a dirty word. Mm-hmm. And so I had this mentor who was encouraging me, encouraging me to become more artistic. And I was pretty resistant. Well, I finally got to a point where I created the angel Gabriel. It was the, I call it my most significant image because it was the first time I didn't just take a picture. I actually created an image. I envisioned it as I stood there in my mind, and then I manipulated it to match that vision in my head. So it was significant to me. And I showed my mentor and she said, don't center the image. I'm always telling you that, Cole, don't center your images. And I was kind of taken aback because that's how I had seen it in my head, but she had credentials. So I thought I owed her, I I should go and try it. So I tried cropping the image and it just physically made me ill because that's (laughs) not how that image was supposed to be. And I vowed at that moment to never again listen to another person's advice about my vision because it's just their opinion. She may have created it off center, but it's my image and my vision. And I think that was the first time I recognized what others thought is unimportant because it's just an opinion. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to kind of go both ways, right? Like one of the things that I see over and over and over again, at least on social media and like, you know, photography pages on Facebook and someone posts an image and it has thousands of likes. And then inevitably there's a photographer that comes in and has an opinion about it uh, that maybe you know, hey, there's this this thing about this photo I don't think I like or it doesn't look yeah. right to me or whatever. And then they get really upset about it and get defensive about it and how dare you critique my work. It seems to me like it would just be so much easier if people were like, you know, that I'll take that into advisement, but I like it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or, you know, you can learn something from it too if you choose to, but you also can, to me, it's a choice, right? You can choose how you react to what people are saying about your photography, or you can choose not to. Well, you can fake it and act like it doesn't bother you, but the better solution is to really get to a point where it really doesn't bother you. And that's because (laughs) you have confidence in your vision. You have confidence in your image. When I created Gabriel, I saw it a certain way. And so I have no problem with somebody else saying, well, I would have done it differently. Fine, go do it differently. I don't know. Yeah, we all have different opinions. And that's the thing is they're all opinions. Right. There's no right or wrong for sure. Right. Right. I'm, you know, as I, I want to hear a little bit more about how you had resisted image manipulation, because I know that, and obviously we're not going to spend three hours talking about, you know, the, the merits or lack thereof of quote unquote photoshopping. But what was that struggle like for you in terms of, you know, thinking through uh, what is acceptable to you in terms of, or comfortable for you in terms of, you know, what you will or won't manipulate with your images? Well, I was raised in a very strict photographer mindset. Uh, First of all, let me say that growing up, I never believed I was creative. And I think part of the reason photography appealed to me was that I thought that I could compensate for my lack of creativity by excelling in the technical. It was just a, it's a silly thought now that I can be technically proficient and, and that will make up for a lack of creativity, but that's all I had, I believed. This mentor I had helped me understand that I did have creative ability, but I still carried that baggage around that I wasn't supposed to manipulate the image. Well, I slowly overcame that and uh, now I have no problem with doing things to an image. There's still a line where I won't cross and everybody has to draw their own line. Like I don't believe in adding items to an image, but I've got no problem with cleaning up an image and dodging out detail and uh, cloning out a piece of trash that was left in the image. And uh, I I do a bunch of before and afters and you can see what I do. It's nothing too terribly dramatic, but but like my Harbinger series, I wouldn't add a cloud. Ah, right. I I like those photos. Those are really cool. I was actually wondering about that if those were, you know, if that was those were those one little puffy cloud over that subject is that was if that was actually what you experienced. Well, sometimes there might have been a peripheral cloud and I would have cloned it out, but leaving the main big one. But yeah, but I didn't I don't add clouds. And sometimes I've got some with long exposures and the clouds perfectly still. It's because I did a, an exposure for the top half to keep the clouds still. And on the lower half with the water, I did a long exposure and I combined the two. Sure. No, I think uh, that's interesting. I feel like we all kind of have our own line. Yeah. Um, But I'm curious, what keeps you from crossing that line? Nothing. 
I just don't want to. <laughs> okay, I like it. And maybe, and maybe my view will change someday. My view changed to this point, and maybe it'll change again. And, and I never judge another person by what their line is. Uh, there's people who do complete composites, and they add things, and they do things that I don't care for, but that's their business. That's their image. That's how they see it, and good for them. I mean, we all should be libertarians in that manner. Everybody gets to do their own thing. Cool. Well, going back to what you were talking about earlier around um, your vision, I'm curious, how do you know that you're being true to your vision um, for your work? Like, what is what does that feel like? Is it something you know? Is it something you've just gotten to this point in your career as a, or I guess not career, but as in terms of your just experience? Like, how do you know? Yeah, this is my vision, and I'm not going to change a thing. Well, vision is something. It's a hard concept to understand. I remember not getting it at all. It was this very wispy thing that I couldn't grasp. Vision is simply how I see things, how I like things. Uh, I say that vision is the sum total of your life experiences that cause you to see the world in a unique way. If you and I stand at Zabriskie Point and we photograph, we're likely to come up with different interpretations. Uh, But some people, they think when they go to Zabriskie Point, they have to take a picture of Manly Beacon at sunrise like everyone else has done it. And I say, screw that. I'm going to do what I like. And, and I certainly want to, don't want to do what a million other people have done. So sometimes our vision gets sidetracked because we're doing things the way that uh, we've been taught or by following some imaginary rule of composition or whatever it is. We're concerned if our image will be accepted by the rest of our photo friends in our photo club. Whatever it is, uh, those things get in the way of vision, and vision then can't flourish because it's being trampled by all of these external concerns. So the first thing you have to do is just, I say, just let go. Let go of caring what other people think. Let go of complying. Let go of the rules. Let go of worrying about being criticized. Let go of worrying if the image will be liked or it'll win. Forget all of that. And once you do that, your vision can start to come forth. But if you're concerned about those external things, vision's not going to be able to happen. Mm. I think that's great advice. I feel like there's a lot of really, really good, talented photographers that you know produce a lot of derivative uh, imagery that you know it's it looks really good. It probably would sell really good at an art fair. Their mom and friends probably think it's the best thing since sliced bread. But there's something missing in that person's work. And I'm just making this person up. And I'm just thinking, you know, I'm painting in broad strokes here about lots of people's work that I look at where it's like, yeah, it's really strong, but there's nothing you about that work, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. It's derivative. It's everybody's following the same rules and going to the same iconic shots and shooting like everyone else. So we we end up with... uh, I don't know. I, I think you've hit it just right on the head. It's derivative. And I think that uh, I, I do these webinars a lot here since the virus. And I keep getting this one comment that's just, it shocked me. People will write and thank me for giving them permission to do whatever they want. And I, my first reaction is, well, who am I to give you permission? You're an adult. And my that's... second is astonishment that they think they need anyone's permission. Uh, Most of these people are my age or older. And if they haven't figured out by now to do what they want, what they love. So I'm just amazed at that. Uh, I guess we're creatures who seek to please and fit in by nature. And when you do that, that, I think that plays into it for sure. I think, are you familiar? Well, this is a funny question to ask you. Are you familiar with Hans Strand at all? No. uh, he's a photographer over in, I want to say Sweden, but he likes to use the word courageous when he talks about the work of photographers that he admires. I kind of like that word because it's it's kind of encapsulating what you're saying. It's like, you know what? Screw the rest of the world. Screw trying to emulate what other people are doing. Just do what you think is good, even if it's kind of out there a little bit, you know? Well, think about any field, music, art, painting, photography, anybody who does something a little bit different, there's a million voices telling them they shouldn't do it that way. Right. Uh, And if they listen to that advice, we never would have discovered their work. 
And now, of course, they're geniuses because they did their own thing. And so I don't know. The Beatles are a huge influence in me and my photography because as I looked at their career, they could have, and I'm sure they had advice to do this, don't change a thing. You've got a winning formula. Don't do anything different. But the, every album was completely different. They wanted to explore. They wanted to grow as musicians. They wanted to experiment. And they fortunately did. And so we got this incredible, you know, this work that's just amazing and how it grew from these, you know, I want to hold your hand at the beginning, these very simple lyrics to these very complex uh, songs. So that's how I want to be in my photography. I never want to stay still. I never want to try to remain static because I'll rack a winning formula. I just want to do what I love and not worry about anything else. Mm. That's, you know, that's my definition of success, by the way. Everybody should define success for themselves. And mine is simply to do what I want when I want to do it. I like that. I, I, what I, one of the things I think is kind of interesting is that there's a lot of people that feel like, oh, in order for me to have my vision or to, to make good photographs, I need to learn this really popular Photoshop technique that makes, you know, creates like a glow ball or, or, Ooh, I can, I can blend in a Milky Way with this shot and make it just really stand out. And for me, it's like, I think, I mean, yeah, you might create some visually interesting images that way, but that doesn't really, that's not the same thing in my mind. That's not no, no. like, that's misinterpreting the, in, uh, what what you're trying to say in my opinion like that's that's like that's like trying to make take some kind of shortcut in order to feel like your work stands out differently when it really doesn't no, i agree uh vision and that's my big thing vision is where it all begins the technical part is the easy part but having that vision of what that final image is going to look like that drives the shot that drives the processing Without vision, you just have a technically perfect image, but it lacks soul. It lacks that spark that makes it your image. So I agree. Uh, I really de-emphasize equipment and technical process. My Photoshop process is the simplest. I challenge anybody to have a simpler process than mine. And it's purposely that way so that I'm not focusing on the wrong thing. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to do layers. I don't use curves. I don't use plugins. I don't use any black and white conversion programs. Uh, I don't calibrate my monitor. The list of things I don't do is much longer than the things that I do. I have six steps that I do in Photoshop, and that's it. Which six are they? <laughs> oh, I, I am you don't have to name them all. I was joking. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, it's a super simple. And I show people the process because I want them to understand you don't need these elaborate processes yeah. to be able to create a great image. And and for the people who are chasing this endless stream of new products and new gadgets, I, I they'll never get to the vision part because they're going to be too busy learning all the tools in the toolbox. And I hear that all the time. To be able to express my vision, I first need to know all the tools. I disagree. I say, learn your vision, find your vision, and then learn just the tools needed to express it. Mm -hmm. When I did the yeah. Auschwitz series, I had no idea how to create these ghosts, but I figured it out because it was a specific challenge. I had the vision of what the image would look like. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's um, that's really good advice. And I think it's easy, especially as a new photographer, to get caught up in gear and, and Photoshop and technology because you think, it, you think in your mind, for some reason, that's what's going to make your photos good. And I think yeah. if, I, I agree. Just, if you start at a place where you just want to you know, I guess for, I guess for me starting out, it's like, oh, if I just have a natural curiosity and wonder about the world and try to capture things that catch my attention and things that I love in a way that is interesting. And then if I get to a point in, you know, trying to make that image that I don't, that I need a tool, you know, then yeah, learn that tool. But exactly um, right. Exactly yeah. right. But just think that you have to know all the tools in every toolbox before you can proceed with the creative part of photography. You'll never get there. Well, let, let me tell you my theory on people who are hung up on equipment because I was one of them. They lack, <laughs> me too. I was they, too. <laughs> they lack confidence in their creative ability. Absolutely. They, they yeah. don't think they're creative. And I got to tell you, we are all creative. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think what's an interesting thing about photography, you know, we were talking before the show, you were asking me how I 
kind of got my start in photography and, you know, listeners have heard the story a thousand times, but essentially I wanted to document my mountain climbs. And, uh, you know, that's a very, that's, that style of photography is, you know, using a device to record your, um, to, re- to record something, whether that's an experience or an object or uh, a place. And I think the next phase in photography that I think a lot of people have a hard time jumping to is, you know, creating something with your photography. Um, and I'm curious for you, like, what are the key differences between recording versus creating? Yeah, I, I, I call it taking a picture versus creating an image. Well, taking a picture is the obvious. You snap the shutter, you let the camera or Photoshop do the automatic controls, and you say, well, that's it. Is it an accurate representation of what I saw? And creating is where you stand there and you say, well, I see it differently. I see the light differently. Uh, Whatever it is, how you see it in your mind, and then you go home and you manipulate the heck out of that image until it looks like your vision. Uh, So it's really, for me, it's just manipulating versus not manipulating what the eye see versus what your vision sees. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the field um, making images, do you have that end result in mind before you even start, you know, before you even start? Yeah. Always. Yeah. I never come home and just play with an image, hoping to stumble upon a great image. No. (laughs) Right. That never works for me either. (laughs) Or at least it never results in anything very interesting anyway. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, I'm sure you get this question 9 billion times from people, but I'm just going to lay it out there really simply because it's very, it's quite opposite to my style. And that is why, why have you chosen black and white? I have no idea. I just, you know, I joke and I say, I grew up in a black and white world. When I was a kid, television was in black and white. Movies were in black and white. The news was delivered in black and white. Uh, everything, even our nation, was still segregated into black and white. Mm-hmm. And perhaps I see the world through those eyes. I'm not sure that's really true. It, it makes for a nice, interesting thought, but <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just drawn to black and white. Always have been. When I was a kid, and the, I remember when the Beatles came out, they played on Ed Sullivan one night, and everybody just went goo goo gaga over the Beatles. And I was wearing all black, black turtleneck, black pants, black shoes. I just always had this thing about black and white. I don't know why. Huh. Did you uh, did you ever dabble in color? No. Never? No. That's funny. And- You're like Jack Curran. He's the same way. It's like we always joke with each other because I have almost no black and white photos. So he's always like, come to the dark, <laughs> come to the dark side. <laughs> you know, and I've got a prejudice against color myself. Maybe it's the, the garish, over-processed, pumped colors. And I think, you know... It's easy to hide behind color. It's easy for the eye to land on a bright, bright color image. But if you want to hold attention, you got to have more than just pumped colors. You got to have composition and you got to have a, a, you know, just a decent image beneath the color. And that's true in black and white or color. Um, well, it seems I, to me like a, like a nice way of giving yourself an extra challenge. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. As if photography wasn't hard enough as it is. I don't know. I've got a painter friend who thinks that, uh, I always thought painters had it hard because they had to be able to, I can't draw a rock and these painters can create these great images. And my painter friend says, no, you guys have got it hard because we can create anything that we want out of our imagination. You have to create something with what's been dealt you with a hand that's been dealt you. Uh So that was an interesting perspective. No, that is a very interesting perspective for sure. Unless, Unless you're, you know, compositing like 20 different images into one final masterpiece. But yeah, definitely. I think that's uh, that challenge is one that photography is somewhat, somewhat unique to. I wonder sometimes if black and white is an acquired taste. You know, there's certain things in life people talk about wine. You know, the first time you drink it, it doesn't taste very good, but you acquire a taste for it. Maybe photography, black and white's the same way. Yeah, I don't know. Like when I look at your work, it's definitely the style of black and white that I I personally like a lot just because for me what black and white does similar to what you were saying before is that it it really forces you to uh, look at other elements of the image that make it strong including composition lines shapes um, gradations and tones uh, relationships between objects I think in some ways it kind of forces you 
to, to look deeper into an image, which is something that I kind of like, but I think, but I also like color photography too, a lot. So, um, I don't know. You like what you like, you know, it's just like vision. It's, that's how you see. I think black and white for me distills it down to the very basics. Uh huh. Yeah. And when there's certainly in some ways, there's less things you need to worry about in terms of getting the color, the way they think it needs to look, which True. for me is like one of the hardest things to do. I think that's why you see so many photos that look a little garish because people are like, oh, I think that's what it looked like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, so cool. Well, you know, one of the things that I really, really, really wanted to talk to you about, and I'm sure you're tired of talking about it, but it's something that comes up on the podcast probably at least once a month, I feel like, and that's this idea of photo celibacy. And I think it pretty much all comes back to to your name whenever people talk about it. And it's an idea. I, I was first introduced to it by Sarah Marino a couple of years ago. It's actually helped me quite a bit in terms of kind of breaking out of that zone of, um, you know, derivative work. I think it, it, forces you as a photographer to um, to see the world through your own vision. For example, when I went to Iceland for the first time in 2017, before I went on the trip, I purposely did not look at any photographs of Iceland or any of the places that were on our itinerary because I didn't want to have a preconceived idea of what, to, what photos to make. And I actually think it helped me quite a bit. I mean, I think I came away with images that or somewhat derivative in some ways, just because that's, you know, as photographers, we get naturally drawn to the same thing sometimes. But I'm curious, what what has that approach meant for you and your photography? And what are the merits of that approach um, from your from your perspective? Well, first of all, I commend you for doing that. That's exactly how I go to a, a new location. I do no research. I don't look at a travel guide to see the must-see sites. I don't look at other photographers' work. I don't even rent hotels so that I'm in fixed locations at certain dates and times. I just go and I look. Mm-hmm. Well, photographic celibacy came about because I had been challenged to find my own vision and I had no idea of how to do it. And so I listed these 10 steps that I was going to take to find out if I had a vision. And one of them, these were just common sense things that I did trying to understand if I had a vision. And one of them was I was always my shots look like everyone else's, imitative. And I wanted to find out what I really thought. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if I were blind and they suddenly came up with an operation and I could suddenly see. And when I went to photograph a tree, I didn't do it like Weston did it or Adams did it or anyone else. I saw it fresh and unique. Well, I can't turn that clock back. I've got certain images burned into my memory. (laughs) But But I didn't need to exacerbate make it worse by sitting there and just bathing myself in the images and vision of other people. Because I found that when I did that, I then tended to try to create images that look like that. So I just said I was going to stop looking at other people's work and try to, as much as possible, erase that blackboard, get all of those preconceived vision ideas out of my head. And it's been 12 years and I'm still doing it. I thought maybe I would do it for a short time And then it would go back to looking at other people's work. But when I look at other people's work, I still find myself being imitative and uh, sometimes even a little depressed because it seems like the world is full of incredibly great photographers. (laughs) That, that, that's another benefit for sure. For me anyway, you know, kind of hearkening back to what we were talking about in terms of external versus internal validation, you know, no matter how good you are at something, you're always going to find someone else who's better and I think if you just prevent yourself from looking at other people's work, sometimes that can prevent you from getting in this weird psychological funk where you feel like your work isn't any good. Oh, so many people feel that way when they just sit there all day after day looking through other images. And I always say this, when I was looking at their images, all I could see was their best and my worst. And it was an unfair comparison. Right. There's probably people who look at my work and say, oh my gosh, it's wonderful. I was just there. I didn't see that. But then I look at their work and I say the same thing. I was just in Iceland. I was in that same spot. Why didn't I see that? Well, we see differently. We see what we see. We see differently. Uh-huh. Anyways, photographic celibacy, nobody gets it hardly. I, I put it this way. 85% of the people just think I'm a nut. 14% of the people say, you know, I get what you're saying, but it's not for me. And only 1% 
say, I'm going to try that. And Sarah was one of them who did, and she found value in it. I think she's now photographically promiscuous again. Uh, she only <laughs> tried it for about a year, I think she told me, but she found it valuable. I think I think she does it. Um, I mean, I think she purposely avoids spending a lot of time looking at other people's work uh, just because she knows the effect it can have on you. Um, it's funny though, whenever, you know, probably once or twice a month, her and I will get into some kind of Twitter conversation with other people where they, they just think that this idea is nonsense and madness. Yeah. And actually, yeah. <laughs> they, some people even take it further where they're like, that's, that's just stupid. Why would you ever do that? And I'm just like, hey, dude, just hold on, like, try it out. I think you'll find that it actually makes you a better photographer. I was giving my presentation to a group back in New Jersey, and I was explaining photographic celibacy. And this man stood up and he goes, you do what? And I explained it. And he goes, why in the world would you do that? And I said, because I want to find my vision way more that I want to enjoy looking at other people's work. That's my goal, to find and be true to my vision. Nothing else matters to me. Now, would you agree that for some people, looking at other people's work might help them refine their vision? No, I would never agree to that. <laughs> I've heard, I hear people say it, give, it inspires them. It didn't inspire uh, me. I hear uh, people say it gives them new ideas. Well, I don't believe in borrowing and stealing other people's ideas. I believe in creating honest work, ideas that are wholly mine, not inspired by seeing somebody else do it. Uh, and and people say, well, I really enjoy it. I enjoyed it too, but I want to find my vision more than I want that enjoyment. That's interesting. I wonder if um, maybe it's the difference between taking the long road versus the short road with maybe different results at the end of the road. Cause I think, I, I think there is an exercise where you can, you know, look at lots and lots and lots of other people's work and, try to figure out what you like about or what you don't like about. And that can help you kind of see the world differently when you're out. But I think that's a totally different exercise than just, you know, looking at a lot of work and going, Oh, I want to make work like that. I think there are two very yeah, different yeah. exercises and one's you know, very intentional and one's not. You know? I, I can't speak for other people and what their process is. I only know how I work, what I've experienced and what I've decided. And for me, this works. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm still doing it because I still find value in it. Uh, John, poor John Barkley, he was in the audience once when I was giving this presentation, and I talked about celibacy and the people behind him start really, you know, what a stupid idea, what a how dumb. And 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 John said something that I thought very astute to them. He said, "Look, he's not telling you that you should do it. He's telling you what he did." One of the things that I really enjoyed uh, on your website is that you have a um, a page dedicated to you recording audio clips over a uh, presentation of each image. And it's just you talking about the story behind the image in those audio clips. And um, I don't know that I've ever seen anyone else do that before. And I was curious what kind of sparked that idea and what, what kind of value have you seen in doing that? Well, I don't really know where it came from. I love telling the stories behind my images. I tell people I have a presentation called Tall Tales, some of which are even true. Uh, actually, all of, these, all of these tales are true, but I just enjoy telling the stories and I've just found people were addicted to them. And I don't know how I got onto the audio, but man, people love them. I don't know why, but... Yeah. Have, it, have you found that, uh, that people going to your website reach out to you or contact you because of that? Or like, what are some of the benefits that you found from doing those audio clips? Well, I, I, you know, to have a benefit, you have to have an objective and I really don't. I just, I don't. <laughs> it's but you like found I'm it fun. fun. So check that box. It was a fun thing for you to do. Yeah. It's, it's fun and people enjoy it. So that was good enough, but uh, I do get a lot of comments about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I thought it was a great idea. It's uh, something I'd never thought of doing before. And I'm not even sure that I could totally figure out the technology behind that. Did you just embed like little YouTube clips or how did you do that? Yeah, just an iPhone and then it export the WAV file and convert it in iTunes to an M4A or whatever it is. And huh. okay. yeah, it's simple. yeah, cool. No, I think it's a cool idea. I really, I really, like I said, it's something I haven't seen anyone else do before. And 
I mean, you actually take quite a quite a bit of time per photo to really talk through it, and it allows the the viewer to get to know you better as the photographer, which is, I think, you know, on the internet, that's not something that always comes through in our photographs. So I think yeah. that's something yeah. that I found to be really interesting and kind of personable, I guess. I think a thing I do like about it, and I, I've never thought about it until now, is you'll notice that I never talk about anything to do with equipment. Hmm. I, I And even when people ask me directly, I don't like to talk about equipment because it furthers this this false idea that equipment is somehow the key to the, the image. I like to talk about the, uh, the discovery of the vision or the spark, the creative spark that uh, got you excited and got you going. And so I really like that I never emphasize equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Have there been any other surprising things that have come out of doing, doing that? Well, the one, I, I've always believed that an image should not require explanation. Uh, you shouldn't have to create a title that explained it or have a little statement that explained it. It ought to be able to stand on its own. And so at first, when I did it, I was worried that I was explaining the image. But then I came to a, a comfortable place that I'm not explaining the image. I'm explaining how it came about. Mm-hmm. So I'm comfortable mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, I guess those are two very different things. And I would hate to, uh, as the as the artist, it seems like you don't want to force people to see it in a certain way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, makes, that makes sense. So the only reason I do uh, titles and captions is purely for search engine optimization purposes. Ah, <laughs> and, and, and mine are so simple. Mine are like Melting Giants 1, Melting Giants 2, Melting Giants <laughs> right. 3. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's awesome. Well, uh, another thing I found on your website that I super appreciated and wanted to talk to you about is you had a blog post where you talked about this ghost series that you did. Um, I believe it was in Auschwitz, um, if, if I'm not mistaken. And because I think I heard you talk about that on David Johnston's podcast as well. And first of all, those are really, really a fantastic set of images and really cool to look at. Uh, but you talk about on your on your blog how after you had done them or created them that uh, people wanted you to do more of them and there were there were some not so great ramifications from that that you kind of came to realize through that process and i was hoping you could talk a little bit about what that experience was like sure sure well first of all i did create that series the ghost of auschwitz birkenau it was an unplanned series. I had gone to uh, Ukraine to visit my son in the Peace Corps. Then we hopped over next door, stayed a couple of days in Krakow. And uh, I didn't want to go to the camps because I, I don't do sad places, sad stories. But my family voted and off we went. Anyway, while on this tour, I just had this incredible moment of inspiration. And I created that series, The Ghost of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And it was popular. And people who would be my uh, unofficial advisors would say, hey, you need to strike while this iron is hot. You've got this winning formula. You need to do the ghosts of Little Bighorn, the ghosts of the Twin Towers, the ghost of uh, whatever it is. Uh-huh. Uh, you need to take advantage of this marketing opportunity. And I resisted because I didn't have any inspiration to do those things. But the problem is it's kind of like praise. You hear it enough, you hear it enough, you hear it enough, and you start buying in and believing it. So pretty soon I said, okay, off I'm going to go to England. And I'm, I love these castles. We had just been watching one of those miniseries uh, about somebody living in those castles. And I thought, man, that's pretty cool stuff. Let's <laughs> go over to England. And we'll, I took my daughter and she, uh, a white sheet, and she was going to be my ghost. And we shot all these ghost shots in all these castles. Well, I get home and I look at process the images and I don't like them. I don't like them at all. And I realized the reason I didn't like them was because the project wasn't born out of inspiration or vision. It was a, you know, a uh, contrived marketing strategy to ride the wave of success of a previous project. And it taught me a very valuable lesson. If I'm not inspired and I don't have the vision for a project, I don't do it. So it was an expensive lesson, but it was well worth it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel like the influence of praise on someone's behavior and or creative process can take all different shapes and sizes, both positive and negative. I'm curious, have you, did that experience teach you anything else about 
praise that you know that you've learned about yourself or that you 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 kind of use as a i don't know like a cautionary experience like oh here's that feeling again i need to avoid that or what <laughs> what what yeah. uh what else has that done for you as a photographer well that project didn't but i've always been susceptible to praise i as a 14 year old boy I quickly realized that i could use photography to to get praise first from your family the neighbors and teachers and so I've always been extremely susceptible to praise. I, I would notice that I would take a, a photograph that I didn't particularly like, but it got so much praise that I started liking the image. And even though I recognized it happened, I was not able to put myself back in those other shoes and recognize I didn't really like it. I now loved it because everyone else did. So I've been purposely trying to not listen to praise. I find it much more dangerous, as I mentioned, than criticism. It can sway you. It can turn your head. It can make you do things that you wouldn't have ordinarily done. So I think it's dangerous and I keep away from it as much as I can. That's awesome. You know, as I'm hearing you talk about this, I'm struck by this idea that it seems to me that um, maybe more so in your case, but I'm sure lots of other people too, that for, for you, it seems that photography has kind of been this vehicle by which you've used for um, personal self-improvement, whether or not you wanted to or not. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, I, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're talking about, but I tell people that finding my vision changed my photography and it changed my life because I've realized that vision is not just about photography. It's how I see the world about being an independent thinking, uh, a person independent of criticism, independent of praise, almost like Mr. Spock from Star Trek in a way <laughs> that you're able to just proceed ahead with your commitments and convictions and not let all of this other crap get in your way. Yeah. I mean, that's the, uh, those are all the things that make life messy. You know, like when you, I don't know, you get a negative comment on your photograph and then your blood pressure starts to raise and your heart starts to beat faster. Like that's not, for me, that's, that's the ugly side of humanity in some ways. It's, those yeah. are the things that I think most people don't want to experience. Although, I don't know, maybe for some people that drives them to, to create better, better work for them. So I don't know, but for me, I tend to avoid those awkward feelings of, those negative awkward feelings, I guess I should say. And it seems like through these experiences you've had and the things you've learned about yourself and trying to become better at avoiding those situations, it's it's just made you a better person. Well, I, I've heard people say that the constructive criticism helps them grow as a photographer. And I don't understand that. I want my constructive criticism to come from myself as I self-analyze an image and say, what do I like about it? What don't I like about it? What would I do different? Uh, but when I hear other voices, they're just opinions and they don't come from my point of view and my vision. So they're unimportant to me. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I will say that there have been instances where I've gotten feedback from people I love and trust and it's made my photographs better, but I don't know that that's necessarily translated into a long-term betterment of my images or maybe just more of a technical proficiency, but in terms of vision, not so much, I guess I should say. Yeah, I think there's a lot of comments someone could make. Uh, if I had a question about how to do something, in fact, I had this. I shot that series Melting Giants up in Newfoundland of the glacier, uh, the glaciers that uh, uh, sent off icebergs and they beach themselves on the shores of Newfoundland. And I had this one gorgeous, gorgeous uh, iceberg, but he was rocking in the surf, so I couldn't do a long exposure of him. Everyone else, every other one I could do a long exposure except for that one. And it was the most beautiful one. I knew what I wanted. I could see it in my head, but I didn't know how to achieve it. So I took a still. Later, I get back and I ask a friend about it, and he had a technical solution for me of how to turn that still into a long exposure. And now Melting, Gi Melting Giants, number 22, my favorite image is because he helped me technically. Mm -hmm. I didn't ask him, though. I didn't go to him and say, hey, what should I do with this image? And he goes, well, you could maybe not center it and maybe put this over here and do this. No, those are vision questions. I knew what I wanted. My question was very specific. How do I make this a long exposure? Right. So I'm, I'm okay with those kinds of questions and other people helping, but not about the vision. Uh-huh. I think that's that's a good distinction because I think 
Uh, oftentimes we get caught up in those two things uh, being kind of muddled together. And I think if you're able to kind of um, separate the two in your mind, it can help you grow as a photographer in some ways. You sound a lot like me. I've just heard two or three comments that make me believe that you're the kind of a person who runs into a challenge and you figure it out. You go for it and you figure out a way to make it happen. Oh, for sure. I mean, <laughs> I knew I'm completely self-taught also. I knew nothing about photography. When I, when I bought my first camera, I went to the library and I checked out like every book I can find. And I just tried to, through trial and error, and lots of error mostly, but, you know, tried to figure out how to get my camera to work. And then I did the same thing when I started my mountain climbing project paired with my photography. I was like, oh, I need a way to share this with the world. And this was before Facebook and all that got very, yeah. you know, social media wasn't really big back then. So I learned how to build a website in Joomla, which is kind of like WordPress, but a little different. And so, yeah, I just grind through it, suffer through, maybe it's the hard way of doing it, but it, I don't know, it's satisfying when you get yeah. done, you're like, I figured it out. Cool. <laughs> and, and all those mistakes you made, those are valuable lessons as valuable as the, the, the positive things that you accomplish. Those mistakes are valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think John Sexton, he's a photographer that shoots over in Yosemite a lot. I think he said one time that, you know, I'm not, a better photographer than you. I've just made more mistakes, <laughs> which I think is kind of perfect. You know, that brings to mind. I have, I've had people say to me, every image you take is a great one. And I said, no, I only show the great ones. Right. People you don't see that. Get, yes. <laughs> you don't see the 90% of the other ones that are total garbage. <laughs> oh, what do you, what, what, wait, what do you mean? 90%? The 99%. <laughs> yes. And that's one of those things when you're looking at other people's work on the internet, you get this false sense that they're every shot they take is great. No, right. they're not. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the other things you had on your, on your website that struck me as just, I don't know, I guess the word I would use is inspirational, but I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. And I think it's more of just a philosophical approach to creating images, but you know, you talk a lot about, creating images that you love. And I think, you know, on the surface, that sounds pretty simple. Uh, but I was curious for you, like, what does that look like? How do you know that you've created an image that you love? Well, let me talk, go back to when I was trying to find my vision. I mentioned those 10 steps. The very first step in my search for my vision was to print out my images. And I printed out hundreds. And I sat there and I put them in two piles, images that I love, everything else. Now, now I shouldn't even say images that I love. Images that I really, really loved. And that doesn't mean they all look the same, but they that the common denominator was that I loved them. And the other pile was images that got praise, images that got likes, images that won, images that sold. Anything that I couldn't say that I truly loved didn't go in that pile. And then my second step was to commit to never again photographing anything that I didn't truly, truly love. So those two steps were the very basis of finding my vision. And it's something I have to hold true today, not producing for likes or wins or sales. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of what I, it's, it, it's embodied in what I call creating honest work. Hmm. Yeah, that seems simple enough. Creating honest work. You know, it's interesting because I listen to a lot of other photographers talk about, you know, their approach to creating images that will sell in a gallery or sell at an art show. And, you know, that approach is completely different in its own sense because you're trying to get into the mind of the consumer and understand what inspires people to take something home with them and hang it on their wall, which to me, you know, that that's, that's great in terms of trying to master that so that you can maximize your earnings. However, gosh, I can't help but think, for, at least for myself, you know, that, that makes it really hard to think about what what makes this image interesting or fun or, I don't know, like, what part of myself is in this image, you know? Well, that's why I never chose to go into photography for a living. I didn't want to have to make those 
compromises. I didn't want to be constantly saying, what does the buyer want? What does the gallery owner want? I wanted to say, what do I want? Mm-hmm. And not and think just, of anything else. You've just gotten, uh, well, I wasn't going to say, lucky is not the right word, but you've been able to find that there is a Venn diagram of the image that images that you love and the images that people will buy or like. There is some images that are kind of stuck in that overlap, <laughs> which is great. Wait. Well, you know, I, I I have no problem recognizing that my style and in black and white appeals to a very, very small slice sure. of the photo, photo people who appreciate photography. But that's not why I do it, so I don't care. Uh, if I had nobody who was interested in my work, that wouldn't dissuade me from doing what I love. So, that you know, it's so freeing, as we, we've mentioned, to not have to worry about selling. It just is. And... Uh, if that somebody is selling their work for a living and that's how they're earning their living, I get it. You got to do it. I'm just glad I'm not there. Yeah. Well, I would say, at least for myself, and at the end of the day, I guess we can only speak for ourselves, but I've kind of pushed myself to um, only try to think about making images that that I find interesting or that I like or that that I'm happy with. And if other people like them too, that's great. And I know that sounds easier said than done for some people, especially like you said, if you're making a living at it. But at the end of the day, man, if it, if it's not fun, I don't know, man. I don't, why, why are you doing it? I, I don't know. That's almost what I say verbatim. I say at the end of the day, it's just you and your images and how you feel about them. <laughs> yeah. That's all there is. So you don't ever, or you're not ever tempted. You're up there and you know you can go for the cheesecake shot where you know it'll sell and that you've done it a million times and everybody else has done it a million times. But what do you do? You know, I, I have been in the past quite a bit. In fact, I would say there was a moment in time, probably in 2015, where I almost quit photography because all of my work was derivative, I felt like. Mm. And I wasn't having fun at it. And I like every time I'd go out, I was the only thing I was thinking about was, oh, I need to make images that people will like on social media because that'll make me famous and people will buy my work and I'll be able to quit my job. And and that was just a ridiculous mindset to be in and it made my work suck. Uh, At least in my my opinion, my work kind of sucked back then. And I kind of purposely went on this different path of, you know, trying to just find images that I liked for just what I enjoy. And sometimes you make images that you like and no one else likes and that's fine. Um, and you just got to be okay with that at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's, Man. The, uh, <laughs> we think alike and you know, there's people who aren't doing it for a living and, but they're, they're just as addicted to the club mentality where they want to win that blue ribbon at the club competition. And they want that one expert in the club, uh, who sits on high and judges everybody's work to like their work. And they actually try to contrive work that will win, that will appeal to that one person. And I think that you're, you're just as trapped there. You're a slave. I agree. A slave to others. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't admit that there's been times when I've looked at the results of competitions that I've entered my photos into. And I look at the winning images and I'm like, really? That's, you thought that was, thought that was better than, than mine? Really? Yeah. But yeah. you know, that's, is what it is. <laughs> I, I didn't let it stop me from creating more work that was similar to the little stuff that I submitted. So, you know, I think I think it's a losing battle to try to replicate what people are doing to win. Although yeah. when you look at, well, obviously you don't do this, but when you look at popular landscape magazines and and Facebook pages and stuff like that, you'll see a lot of work that looks really similar yeah. Because of that idea that people are trying to get their work to look just like the stuff that won, you know? So I think that's well, not good for the health of the art form, in my opinion. I, I, looks the I, same. Have you heard my story about me doing Review Santa Fe? I have not. Uh, I, a few years ago, well, many years ago now, went to Review Santa Fe. And for those who don't know, you just have this giant room with all these tables set up and behind every table is an expert in the field, publishers, gallery owners, etc. And you show your work to them. And I think that for a lot of people, this is to become discovered. So I'm showing my work to everybody. We get to the last reviewer of the day. It's been a long day. He's dead tired. I'm dead tired. <laughs> and 
I show him my work. He looks at it for just a few seconds, and then he brusquely pushes it back to me and says, it looks like you're trying to copy Ansel Adams. Oh, and, yeah. I said, uh-huh. and I said proudly, I am. I love Ansel Adams. And he then said something that was the, the start of me finding my vision. He said, Ansel already did Ansel. What can you do that exhibits your unique vision? And that's what started it all on me trying to find out if I had a vision. So I found the review process to be totally worthless, but I came away with that one golden nugget. Do I have a vision? So I think you talked about this before, but what did that process look like of you figuring out whether or not you had a vision or not? And like, how long did that take? Two years. Two years. And what what, what did it look like? Well, first of all, I didn't know what vision was. I (laughs) thought maybe it was something like a creative ability that some people have and some didn't. And at one point, I almost decided not to pursue my vision quest for fear that I would find out that I didn't have one. Because then I said to myself, what would that mean for my whole photography future if I found out I don't have a vision? Maybe it's better to not know and just be ignorant. But I decided to proceed. And for two years, I struggled, became discouraged with what I thought was a lack of progress. And I was expecting this giant, giant light bulb to come on and me to go, aha, you know, this, this, this clouds open up and this sunbeam comes down and I, angels sing and I go, ah, my vision. But, (laughs) But it wasn't like that. It was just this quiet. One day I just had this quiet moment of understanding. My vision is just how I see things how I like things, how I want them to be. Nothing magical. And the key was throwing away all of those, just let go, letting go of all that other crap that got in the way of me and my vision. And I tell people, you have a vision. No, I don't think I do. You do. You can't not have a vision. You can bury it under a lot of crap so that you think you don't have one, but it's there. Guaranteed. Hmm. I like it. I think that, I think that's, those are good words to, uh, to end on. <laughs> so, Cole, who would you recommend uh, our listeners have here on the podcast or perhaps learn more about? Well, my photographic god in lowercase would be my recommendation, Edward Weston. He changed much of my views on things with his day books, and I would recommend you get him if he's available. <laughs> um, let me go see if i can practice necromancy (laughs) (laughs) oh you mean oh you mean a living person shoot yes i do recommend edward wetson's day books they they were really instrumental in me forming these attitudes let me tell a real quick story about edward weston ansel adams when he met him for the first time they were over i think jeffers house a a common friend and uh, he had never heard of or met uh, Edward Weston before. And he said he was just a little unusual because he didn't seem to care what others thought. They had dinner. And at the end of dinner, uh, he invited Weston to show his work. And he sat in a chair in the front of the people. And he showed him the work with no commentary. And when he was done, he got up and he said he didn't seem to care what we thought, ask our opinion or anything. And that's how I think inspired me to be so completely independent of what others think. Uh, and as you read his day books, that's how he was. He was so confident in what he did. Mm-hmm. But back to your original question. Uh, <laughs> you know, here in my town, we've got the Center for Fine Art Photography, and you might want to uh, invite the director, Hamida, to come visit you guys and do a podcast. The, the center is pretty well known throughout the country, and they've really expanded the type of work that they show and encourage. And I think it might be an interesting interview. Do they, they showcase uh, photography there? Yep, yep, yep. Their roots were kind of black and white landscape photography that mimicked the photographers in my area, but they've expanded to just everything right now. Huh, that's cool. Yeah, there's there's really nothing like that where I live. Um, so that's that's really cool. I think closest I have. gallery down there. Oh, we used to. You're talking, about, still... talking about open shutter? Yeah, I thought they were showing in just a different format now. No, there's no... Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, they cl- it's so funny. They closed like six months after I moved here. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's too bad. Because they were Isn't showing um, work from like, uh, who's that National Geographic photographer who did the Afghan yeah. cover? Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway. I don't, they, yeah. Yeah, they were showing all kinds of really good stuff, but yep, yeah, it doesn't yeah. exist now. Oh, well. well that's too bad. 
Well, awesome, Cole. This has been really fun, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And again, thank you for for coming on, even though I made a mistake on my calendar. So appreciate you and your patience. You're good. I appreciate you having me, especially since I can tell your and my views are pretty aligned, except for the color thing. We'll right. Have to work on that. <laughs> right. 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 And 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 I like John Barkley, and you don't. Oh, don't even, why did you bring his name up? Well, you ruined the entire interview. You know, I taught him everything he knows about photography. And does he ever show me any appreciation? No. No, he doesn't. Oh, wait, I think he's the one that recommended me get you on the show. So I guess it's that. <laughs> oh, I love John. Oh, he's a great guy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks to Cole for coming on to the podcast and for our wonderful discussion today. I hope listeners enjoyed the chat and got something meaningful out of it. I know Cole is not into promoting his own work, but I really encourage you to go check it out. It's some of the best and most unique black and white photography that you'll find, in my opinion. Well, I also want to take the time to thank the people we like to call our podcast producers. Their generous support over on Patreon is really helping keeping the show afloat. I have met many of these people and they are absolutely wonderful humans. I really think if you appreciate the support that they're giving me and you recognize their names, reach out to them and thank them. All right. It would also mean the world to me if you could also support the show. Even at $5 a month, you're making a big impact. I also just enabled annual payment options and you'll be able to save 15% on your patronage. All right. Well, without further ado, thanks to Gary Randall, David Kingham, Jack Curran, Eric Stensland, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Ken Dono, James Bakavoy, Anton Everin, Lori Berenson, William Nurse, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rung, John Whitaker, Jason Clardy, Joshua Wallace, Drew Armstrong, Jim Valencourt, Jennifer King, Andrew Hawkins, Craig Young, Adam Bolliard, and Michael DeMiola. You guys are awesome. And uh, as a reminder, if you want to check out their work, I have a link to everyone's website over on my website at mattpainphotography.com. And you can just look for the podcast link and look for the links to their work and check them out. Well, next up on the podcast, we have an interior designer from Denver, Colorado, Nikolai Alexander. Nikolai gives us insight into the world of interior designers, what they look for in photographic artwork, how they like to collaborate with artists, and so much more. It was a really fun conversation, and I think you'll get a lot out of it. Well, we still have a couple of free licenses available for Arc Panel, one of the best luminosity masking panels available for Photoshop. To get a copy, just leave a five-star review of the podcast on iTunes and send me a screenshot. You can send it via DM or email, whatever works for you, and I'll hook you up. All right, well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.